Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer Steve Janowick to talk about mixing in Atmos. First of all, you've heard a lot about NFTs and crypto, and because of all the hype, and all of the blogs and posts all about this, you would think that just about everybody, especially if you're young, are really into it. But not everyone loves NFTs. Turns out that crypto and NFTs are somewhat hot, but they're in a holding pattern. One of the reasons is that there's a very large category of people right now in the demographic sweet spot for it that really want nothing to do with it. That's gamers. Every time a game company comes out with something that has to do with crypto or NFTs, there's a big revolt from all the gamers, so the companies back off. Why? Well, gamers look at this as a ploy by developers to make more money. They want to pay just once to be able to play the game and not have to worry about any more transactions after that, but instead they're hit with subscriptions or premium downloads or microtransactions and loot boxes and all sorts of things like that to make them pay more And it turns out that crypto and NFTs and all those things I just mentioned don't make the game more fun. That's actually the same with music. NFTs and crypto don't make it sound any better or easier to access or more fun to listen to. In fact, many people just look at it, just like gamers, as another scheme to make money. On top of that, there are a lot of scammers out there who are creating music NFTs without the proper clearances. So you can buy one of these things and not have ownership because the original people that minted them didn't have ownership to begin with. This is very, very complicated copyright law that's still being written. And even artists don't really have the right to do this unless they have all parties sign off, which means all of the writers, publishers, record labels. So unless everybody signs off on it, you're not buying anything that's going to be worth anything down the road. So be careful if you're going to invest in music, NFTs, and crypto as a result to buy it. Just make sure that it adds something of value rather than only money. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on audio mixing, production, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club, along with what makes a song a hit, Q&A, and advice sessions every month. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Speaking of schemes to make money, (laughs) earlier this week, Kanye West came out with something called Stem Player. And basically, if you want to get his latest album, which is called Donda 2, The only way that you can get it is to buy this $200 piece of hardware. It's a piece of hardware. It's a digital music player, and it's called a stem player. None of his new music will be available on any of the distribution platforms like Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal or anything like that. If you want it, the only way you can get it is to buy a stem player for $200. Now, it is kind of cool because... Basically, the songs are split into stems, so you can do your own remix. So there's four-channel mixing, there's Bluetooth built-in, there's a built-in speaker, there's a headphone jack, eight gigabits of storage, and it will play any file format, and you can load up your own songs. Problem is, who does this appeal to? 
The average fan doesn't care about stems. This was tried before and ignored. As a matter of fact, it was tried several times, and basically consumers don't want to do that. They just want to listen and enjoy the music. So on top of that, there's a big blowback from fans because it costs 200 bucks. And the general feeling is this is a multimillionaire who doesn't really need the money, who's forcing poor people, can't afford it, to pay more. Some people are buying it, though. He sold 8000 in 24 hours and basically cleared about $2.2 million. But this is a bold move in order to come out with the player, and we've seen this before. Of course, Neil Young tried it, and we've seen all sorts of other players that have come out in the past. The era of the music player is pretty well past, but Kanye's trying something new. He wants to break free from record labels and distributors. Good for him for wanting to do that, but this might not be the best way. My guest this week is Steve Jenowick, who's worked at Capitol Studios in Hollywood for 25 years. Steve is one of the very first mixers to get into Atmos music mixing, and now has more experience than just about anyone. Among the artists that Steve has mixed in Atmos includes Aerosmith, Miles Davis, Bon Jovi, Carrie Underwood, R.E.M., Maroon 5, and many more. During the interview, we spoke about setting up a home Atmos studio, getting thrown into the Atmos learning curve, how he uses objects and beds, the tools he regularly uses, his custom reverb setup, and much more. I spoke with Steve from his home studio in Hollywood. Tell me about your Atmos room at home. What did you do to put it together? The Atmos room at home came about because of lockdown, really. You know, I always had a, a small little studio mixing room at my house. But when lockdown happened and we realized that I had to keep working and and it looked like we were going to be home for a little bit and nobody was coming over, it was actually my wife who said, you know, we should just give you your space. Let's Why don't you just take the living room? And we kind of moved the furniture out of the living room and pushed the piano aside. And, and I, you know, I kind of begged and begged, borrow, stole to all my speakers that I had, you know, over the years. And and, uh, you know, I cobbled together and originally a 7-1 setup. So I put that together and I was able to, you know, within a week of, of locking down capital, I was up and running here, you know, a couple speaker stands and stuff like that I had to buy. But, um, you know, I had all the software and all that kind of stuff. And because I had already been mixing Atmos for a couple of years, it was a pretty, pretty easy transition. The only, the only thing was adjusting to a new room. And luckily I did have the ability to where before anything went out that I mixed here at my house, I always have a chance to listen to it in a real room. You know, I, I shelved a bunch of stuff and then, you know, at some point was able to go into cap, you know, one of our rooms at Capitol, wherever that was and listen to stuff before it and tweak before it went out. Um, and then I've just kind of kept, you know, even after the building reopened and the rooms reopened, I just kind of kept working at home cause it was here. Um, and we have the space here, you know, as, as kids move out and go to college, the house gets bigger. Yeah. <laughs> so, Funny how that works. Um, yeah. So I, I've just kind of kept working here whenever I can. And then, you know, I go into the studio when I have to, when I have recording sessions and stuff like that, but, um, you know, we're, we're open and, you know, running it at pretty much full strength down at Capitol. But, you know, if, if I can commute from the back of the house to the front of the house, that's a lot easier. No kidding. It's a lot better. <laughs> yeah. What did you do for overhead speakers? So actually now I have these cheap little 
just they're inexpensive. We we remodeled our family room and I took out the little surround speakers I had. They're just kind of these indoor outdoor speakers and I just tossed them up on the ceiling. It, it's I mean, I will admit this is not an ideal setup. I mean, I have pretty good speakers between the PMCs and JBLs, but my ceiling speakers are it's just up there to put something up there to give me a sense of the space. And again, pretty much everything that I do here, I take to one of the to one of the real rooms at, at Capitol or Lemon Tree or wherever we are and and give it the once over there. But again, because I've been mixing for so many years, I kind of know what's going to happen anyway. So, you know, I know where to push stuff in the ceiling to get it to work. And it's kind of nice hearing it, you know, not on a big system sometimes too. You know, I always check headphones. I'm always listening to the binaural mixes also. So that system of checks and balances, you know, stays consistent. But I think had I not been mixing for so long before lockdown, this would have been a much more difficult transition for me. Yeah. One of the things that always comes up when I talk to people that want to get into it and are afraid, it's like, it's going to cost so much money to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's cool when you say, uh, you know, how you cobbled it together and it works for you. And granted, you have experience that someone right. starting wouldn't have, but nonetheless, the perception is this is going to cost me tens of thousands of dollars to do. It depends on how you want to go about it. You know, if you want, if you want a really well set up and, a, you know, a, a really, a really good room, then yeah, it's going to cost you some money. You know, you got speakers and interfaces and all that kind of stuff. I will say, you know, there's a lot of information, especially now floating around about what it takes to start Atmos and, and, you know, everything from just download the software and do it on headphones to you got to have, you know, a million dollars worth of speakers and all this other stuff. And it's probably somewhere in between and it's probably different for everybody. You know, I don't know that you can actually do it in just headphones. Obviously there's, you can, it's, it's, possible. And, and I don't discourage people from downloading the software and starting to play with it. But I think if you've never done an Atmos mix in speakers, trying to do it in headphones is you're, you're kind of, you're probably not going to end up with a really, you might end up with something that sounds really good in the binaural, but you have no idea what it sounds like on a set of speakers. And the fact of the matter is they're both a valid format. You can't just say, Oh, well, everybody's listening to it on their iPhone. So I'm only worried about the binaural. I mean, you know, when you deliver an ADM file for Atmos, it's going out on speakers too. So yeah, I would think that you would want to be able to hear it on speakers at least part of the way. Do you ever check on consumer speakers? I do. I actually have a Sonos system in my family room um, and I can make MP4s and walk back there and drop it in my TV. Um, I don't do it as much as I used to because I kind of know how it reacts now. Um, at Capital, we have a couple of consumer systems set up, and and when new ones come out, we we get them and try to listen to them all and see what they're going to do. You know, they're all different. It depends on the it depends on the technology and the room you're in and everything else. It's it I, like anything audio, the quality of what you're getting is going to depend on kind of the investment you make in in time and hardware and everything else. So, you know, if you're listening to music on your iPhone, it's going to sound different than if you have a really nice set of speakers in your back room, you know, and even in stereo. Okay. So you've been doing this for a while. So how many years would you say? I think we went back and we started in, I think 2017 was the first mixes we did. Okay. Five years. When you first got into it, how long did it take you to get your arms around it? Well, I had two weeks. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) (laughs) Because we built the room at Capital, you know, and, and they built it, you know, obviously in hindsight, we now know Universal had to deal with Dolby and what became the Amazon deal. And, um, and we were, you know, told to build the room and we did. And they dropped me in the room and handed me an REM record and said, the band's coming in two weeks. Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I did have help. I had people from Dolby and, you know, to kind of help me navigate the technology, but as far as what, you know, how to, how to mix music in Atmos, I had some demo stuff that Dolby had done to kind of show off the system, but I don't know that anybody had mixed anything that was, that was intended to be released as an album. So as far as I know, that was kind of the first, you know, first one of those. And they just told me, go for it. You know, you do what you do, figure it out. And, and I figured, well, I have all these speakers and all this room. And, you know, they said, you've got full range speakers. You can put anything anywhere and, you know, go for it. And I just decided I was going to fill the room with sound. And that's, that's still what I try to do. I mean, you have to have, you know, good taste. Some things work and some things don't, but, you know, I try to use the system as aggressively as, as the, as aggressively as the program or the song or whatever it is will allow me to do. Some things are very aggressive. Some things are not. So has your approach changed since that first album that you did? I don't know that my approach has changed. Obviously some of the techniques have changed quite a bit and the way I do things have changed as, as it's evolved and I've figured out what works better than other things as far as, Again, more techniques and, you know, my template is, you know, I'm 30 or 40 versions down on my template and, and new tools are constantly coming out. So, so that, so the techniques have changed, but I don't know that my attitude towards what I'm doing has changed. I still want to fill the room with sound. Yeah. I still want to give the, you know, I still want to create an experience that the listener is going to be engaged in and, you know, and I'm, and I'm still mixing a song. I always have that in the back of my mind. Still mixing, still mixing a record, whether it's in stereo or Atmos or mono or whatever it is. It's, it's not about showing off how cool this system is. It's about delivering a compelling mix for the listener and the artist and everybody else. I was talking to somebody at Dolby, uh, Carrie over at Dolby, and uh, I need to call him today. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> send him my regards. And we're talking about the difference between bed tracks and object tracks and he was just he didn't mention you but he just said well the guys over at capital they tend to do everything as objects rather than beds yeah that that was me yeah okay <laughs> so originally i i <laughs> i thought i heard some technical stuff be, like i thought i heard a sonic difference between the objects and the beds what I was hearing five years ago is no longer sonically relevant. You know, that stuff has all been corrected and taken care of and everything. So, so sonically, there's really no difference between the objects and the beds. But what I did find is that with the, because of the nature of what beds are, beds are more of a physical layout in your room, in the room you're in, whereas objects just are a place in the room. So, I feel like I can control the mix going out into the world a bit better if I use more objects than if I use the bed. <clears throat> and kind of what tipped me off to it and got me think really thinking about it is 
There was a mix that was done at a different facility. It was a 714 facility, meaning they had their bed was four speakers up top. And in Studio C at Capitol, that was at the time was a 712 bed. So even though we had six speakers over the top of us in the room, the bed was just the center two speakers. So this mixer did a mix in another facility and brought it to capital. And, you know, he had put stuff in the ceiling that spread across the ceiling very nicely. And when he played it back at capital, it came out of the two speakers right over our heads, you know, and, and obviously you've been in this room. It's a pretty big room. It, it's a fairly long room, which is why we have so many speakers going deep, but it really changed the way his mix played back because everything was just coming out of those two speakers. And that's when I was kind of like, ah, okay. Now that really solidified in my head, like the difference between the bed and objects had those been objects, you know, they would have come out of the appropriate place in the room as best you can do that. <laughs> so really the, I mean, I think you, you can be bet pretty safe that left center, right is going to be in the front <laughs> and left and right rear are going to be in the rears. Everything in between there is kind of a crapshoot as to what playback system you're on. And you would hope that they would be correct, but you never know. You know, the system was built to, for movie theaters and movie theaters are built by people who know how to build movie theaters. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, now we're in this wild west of, you know, everybody's got an Atmos system. So for me, it was just a matter of, I felt like I could control it a little bit better by using the objects. And the way I did it was I came up with, what we now call our object beds, which, you know, the first, you know, like 25 objects in my template is the actual bed, which, which I do use sometimes. And, and then I have static objects that just rest in certain places that I can steer stuff into, you know, front, back, however that looks like. And then I use individual objects for other stuff too. When you hear your mix playback or some of your mixes played back, do they translate the way you expect? For the most part, yeah. When it folds down? Folding down can be a different thing. It depends on how far you fold it down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, because, yeah, you when it folds down to like all the way to stereo, sometimes you can get some interesting things. If I know a mix is going to be, you know, be in a fold down environment, I may pay a little more attention to the fold downs. Going from like an Atmos to a 7.1 or a 5.1, the mixes translate really well. It's when you start dumping everything into stereo. But for the most part, almost everything I've done and a lot of the Dolby Atmos music that we're putting out, you know, on Apple, Amazon, whatever it is, none of that is ever intended to be folded down to stereo. There are stereo mixes that exist of those things. So yes, it, it folds down to, you know, a 7151 soundbar, stuff like that. But the intention is never that you know, in no, nothing that I've done has the intention been for this one mix to be, to serve all the masters yeah. necessarily. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we do listen to it. We certainly listen to the binaural, which is, which is different than the fold downs. You know, the binaural is a whole different thing. Sure. Uh, how much do you use the LFE? I use it. I do use it quite a bit. I use it. And it's the same as, as we used it when we were doing five, one mixes back in the day, I use it as an extension of the, of the bottom end. So I'm constantly turning it off and on and making sure that the bass and the kick and all that stuff, it doesn't go away. It's in my main left and rights also. And the LFE is just an extension of it. The other thing that I caution people about is 
I filter the my LFE channel myself. So for instance, in Pro Tools, if you pull up, you know, a, a 7.1 track in Pro Tools, you'll have a little fader at the top that says LFE that feeds into it. Well, that's feeding full range into the LFE. And you're planning that the playback system is going to be base managed and have a subwoofer that rolls off and all that good stuff. And probably 90% of the time you're safe with that. But we found, especially when we were working with companies and helping them to develop like some of these smart speakers, that a lot of times they had different ideas about how they were going to treat the LFE. So some of them were just taking the LFE away and not using it, in which case, if you were leaning on that LFE, all your bottom end would go away. Some of them just took it and rolled it in, which meant that if you had a kick drum in your LFE, but you you were using it just as a little weight, well, suddenly you just added, you know, eight dB of kick drum (laughs) to your mix. So everything, everything I do, whether, and this, this is, I was doing this before Atmos when I was doing five, one and seven, one and film mixes and stuff like that. Everything that I do gets sent through an aux to a, an aux channel in Pro Tools, and I filter it myself. So I filter it like I think 150 with a roll off. So everything in my LFE channel is is filtered by me, <laughs> so that I never run into that problem. Yeah, yeah. When you're doing an Atmos mix and you're listening to the stereo, the stereo may be really heavily compressed, heavily mastered. And then here you are in Atmos and you have all this room and you don't have to really lean on that stuff as much. So how do you approach that? Uh, it depends. It really depends on the song and the project. If it's, if it's a pop record that really that the, the sonics and the character of the stereo mix is really built into that bus processing, whether it was, in the mix stage or in the mastering stage, then I do my best to match it. Whether it's, you know, I'm usually doing that in the mixing stage. So I might be just compressing everything a little bit more. I do have ways to do some bus compression. You know, I, I can send stuff out to a mono aux and use that as a side chain, you know, to it, it, it doesn't do exactly what a bus compressor does in, in Atmos. It's a little bit different because you know, it doesn't quite have that glue effect that we like in stereo, but it will get you the sonic characteristics of a pop mix. So I will pay attention to the original mix. And if it if it's based around that bus processing or that mastering, then I will do my best to match it. The advantage I have is I'm referencing the mastered mix. So I just I just have to make my mix sound as close to that as possible. I, I don't have to worry what's going to happen later down the line. I have, I mean, I do when I, if I'm doing a, a full album, there is usually an assembly process where I can do a little bit more of that kind of mastering. If I need to a little bit more processing, if I need to add some EQ, you know, or, you know, to one song or something like that, I, I do do that kind of mastering process myself. But the advantage, again, the advantage is I have the original mix. So that's my, you know, I, I'm, I'm just chasing that. Um, and then depending on who it is, if I have a relationship with the artist or the producer, or I've talked to them, sometimes it's, don't worry about that bus compression, just make it sound great. You know? Yeah. And it depends on, it depends on who it is. It's, it's certainly a lot more fun when I have those kind of advantages to where either I was the, the best is when I'm the original mixer. 
Yeah. When I'm when I get to do the stereo mix and I get to do the Atmos mix, that's really the best. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, sure. But that doesn't happen all that often these days. Um, it's happening more and more, which is fun. How much do your Atmos mixes get sent out for mastering? Uh, never. Okay. <laughs> uh, I I take care of it all myself. I don't think that anything I've done has gone to any. I may have had another person come in and just put another set of ears on it, but just as a casual listen. So everything that we do, especially everything for Universal, goes through an approval process. You know, whether it's the artist or the producer or A&R, you know, whoever the team has deemed is going to be the approval person. Um, so everything gets approved, but but very rarely, if ever, has anything ever gone out to a mastering. You know, I, I just do it myself as part of the mixing process. I was talking to Ma- Michael Romanowski, who's been doing a lot of Atmos mastering, and he was saying that he's getting requests to boost the level and, you know, do all the things that we thought we'd kind of get around here with Atmos. Yeah. But he's being asked to do all that again. Yeah. I mean, you can only boost it so far because of the requirements for delivery. You know, it's, it's always going to be, you know, we can't deliver mixes as loud as, as the stereo ones. I mean, sometimes it's eight, 10 dB. You're dropping the reference, what we call the reference mix that we're trying to match. We're dropping it eight, 10, 12 dB routinely. You can get a parent level out of stuff, (laughs) but you can't get more than minus 18. That's kind of the, the line in the sand, but yeah, it was going to happen. And and we're dealing with it too. I mean, I I will say that I use a lot more of this, you know, bus compression and quotes that I do. I do a lot more of it now than I did three or four years ago when I didn't have to, when it, when I wasn't chasing stuff and you know, when it was, (laughs) when I didn't know where this was going to end up. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And again, it depends on, depends on the music. You know, it all depends on the music. If I don't have to use it, I don't. How about tools? The tools have gotten better, plugins and everything now that yeah. that you didn't have before. What are ones that you tend to use? Um, I mean, the biggest thing is some of the reverbs now. Obviously, there's stuff like Cinematic Rooms and um, the Michael Carnes, you know, Exponential Audio Reverbs. Uh, Liquid Sonics, who does Cinematic Rooms, also does the plate, the illustrious plate. So that kind of stuff has the, the reverbs have been really the big thing that's that's made you know that has come along the quickest i will say i mean i do know that other people are working on other stuff but some of that other stuff is a little bit harder to implement in atmos but the reverbs are the big thing i still use probably half and half whether i'm using my the the reverb scheme that i came up with with pre delays and stuff like that and these dedicated you know surround immersive reverbs a lot of them are really good you know, that's, that's the nice part is that the companies that are making them have not made, you know, junk. They're really good reverbs. So, I mean, cinematic rooms I use in stereo when I'm doing stereo mixes too. So it's just a really great reverb. Um, so, and again, there's more tools coming there. Like anything, they're all, they're going to be coming fast and furious now. And, and some are going to be good and some are going to be bad. And, you know, you use the ones you use and you don't use the other one. Isn't the fab filter stuff all multi-channel as well? Uh, it may be, but again, it might be multi-channel, but I don't know how the, the problem with multi-channel, especially in pro tools is you can only go to seven, one, two, because that's the, that's the widest channel 
there is in Pro Tools. Hopefully that will change. I, I have no information about whether it will or not, but I would I would hope that somebody would, you know, that they would start going to to 714, 914, stuff like that, so that so that we can expand this out a little bit more. I think that would help everybody, you know, the post guys and the and the mix the music mixers. So you mentioned the, the reverbs. Is there anything else that you tend to use a lot? Um, I use the Dolby Panner quite a bit. Um, they now have it, you know, we can program stuff into the Dolby Panner, especially for like stuff I want to constantly move or, you know, an effect, you know, cause you can do the step sequencing in that. Um, there's some idiosyncrasies to it, but, but once you kind of wrap your head around it, it can be a, a quick way to, to do auto panning and stuff like that. There's a delay plugin called slapper that I use quite a bit. Um, I can, you know, steer delays around the room, but that's pretty much it. Other than that, it's, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of stereo stems a lot of the time, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, taking stereo stems and, and just moving them around the room. You know, I have ways to get, you know, stereo stuff to sometimes appear bigger, you know, the equivalent of, of widening in stereo, you know, I can, I can widen in Atmos <laughs> through, through pre-delays and, and a little bit of movement here and there and stuff like that. So I have some stuff like that, that I've come up with, but that's, you know, kind of hitting this just techniques here and there that, that we use. You mentioned uh, pre-delays on reverbs and something that you came up with. Is that using stereo reverbs and, and having a way to make it? Exactly. So them? what it basically is, and again, I've talked about it a few other places, but it's basically, so I have, so each reverb that I have, let me see, I think it's nine instantiations. So if I have, you know, again, when I started this, there weren't really immersive reverbs and I needed a plate and a chamber and a large hall and you know all the stuff that that i was using in stereo i wanted in atmos so what i did is i took so for instance what would normally be my you know medium hall call it was on a send a mono send that was medium hall that sent to a stereo reverb you know sent to a, an aux and it came out into a stereo reverb so i just took that stereo reverb and i duplicated it a bunch of times and then I sent one to the front and then one to the side front and then the side and the back and a couple over the top. So it basically took that reverb and spread it out. And then using it, playing around with it, I realized I had one big, giant, huge mono reverb. <laughs> basically what it was. Yeah, yeah. So what I did is I came up with a pre-delay scheme and rather than doing it in the plugin, I just added a, a, a delay plugin in front of my reverb so that it kind of spills into the room. So it's very short pre-delays from nothing in the front to, you know, just a few milliseconds. I actually timed mine to the tempo. Uh, you know, I started with like a 64th note or something like that. And it, and it just spills through the room and basically it just decorrelates that reverb so that it's not all hitting you at one time. The cool part is, especially if I keep it tempo based, like I had, I had one song I was doing and it was like, man, this is getting kind of mushy. And, and I realized that, the tempo was so slow that my reverbs were really big. <laughs> like this, these pre-delays were, so I just took the tempo and doubled it in Pro Tools. I just changed it and it snapped all my reverbs right back into focus. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Nice. yeah. So it's kind of cool. So I still use quite a bit of that. Um, and the advantage to that is, especially if I get a mix, that's already been done. I can use the same reverbs that they were using. So if somebody was using a specific EMT 250 plugin, Sure. I just take their settings and dump it into my, onto my tracks. It's still, it's still one send in Pro Tools. You know, it's still medium haul, 
but it's hitting that reverb and I can use the same, you know, the same reverb. I may have to tailor the amount of it because obviously I'm adding, I think it's eight, eight stereo and one mono for the center. The other cool thing about that is I can turn them on and off too. I can say, oh, I'll, you know, I got a, a vocal that's, I got a vocal that's stemmed out and it's already got reverb on it. Well, it's kind of just leaning in the front. Well, I can send the reverb, turn off all the front reverbs and just have a little bit of space in the back. So that's kind of nice too. It's, it's a good quick way to, to do stuff like that. That's very cool. What do people expect from you? If they don't have experience with this, <laughs> what, what are they expecting? When they walk in, if they've never heard it, I'm not sure what they're expecting. It's actually kind of all over the place as to what people expect. It's getting to be now, now where people come in, if they've never heard it, they at least have a decent idea of what Atmos is. When we first started, nobody had any idea what it was. Or you would get people like, yeah, yeah, like in the movies. And, you know, and then I'd hit them with something and they'd be like, what was that? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. that was not a movie mix. It was like, no, I, I, I put stuff everywhere. Yeah. I can make it big and loud. And so, yeah, it's really tough when people come in and they've never heard it. One thing that we try and I, and I tell people all the time, like, especially if you're bringing an artist or somebody like that in to hear something, never, ever play them their music first. <laughs> <laughs> Great point. Yeah. That will freak them out. Yeah. <laughs> so if somebody like when somebody walks in for playback, whether I've done the mix or I'm just doing the playback or whatever, it's, have you ever heard this before? They say, no, I have no idea. I go, great. Sit down. Here's rocket. Man. That's yeah. always the first one. We start. Of course. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It works great. Here's right. And then, you know, when the chorus hits and everything happens and then they kind of go, Oh, okay. I get this. Like, you know, it usually takes one or two songs. I'll usually do rocket man. And then something kind of close to what their genre is. And then I'll play them their music. It just, you kind of have to, you know, get their feet wet a little bit. Sure, sure. We're now getting to the point where people have heard it. So sometimes they'll just come in at night, just play it. I get it. I know, I know what's coming. It's okay. But we did have early on a few people, you know, I think we had one or two artists who were like, they just rejected the record. No, I don't like this. And we came to find out that it just wasn't presented to them correctly. Whoever was doing the play, you know, unfortunately we can't control all the playbacks at Capitol because sometimes they're playing in New York or London or wherever it is. You know, we have, we have to chase artists around the world sometimes and find a room for them to listen in. Um, but now we we're kind of, we've realized that mistake and we kind of prep people and let them know like, all right, play them this and then play them this yeah, yeah, right. and hit them with, and to their credit, those artists that rejected those records came back around and actually went, Oh no, no. Okay. We get it now. And, and everything was okay. The mixes were great. Yeah. They weren't my mixes, but they were really good. And they, and they did come around to, to, to enjoying the process. Which is fun. Okay, now the big question. So you've been doing this for quite a while, probably more than longer than anybody else. What makes a good immersive mix? It really depends on the song and what you have. For me, it's it's the same as stereo. Is are you are you engaging the listener in that piece of music? Now we have all this great space to use, but I never want the listener to be conscious of a, where the speakers are, how many speakers there are anything like that, or that there's, you know, something weird in the back. I want, I want people to be engaged. If, if I'm mixing and I put something somewhere and suddenly I find myself turning my head every time that section of the song comes in, well, it's distracting me. And I probably don't want that. You know, there, there are times where that's okay, but 
So I'm trying to to engage the listener the same as I would in stereo. I want them to to be drawn into the song and, and listen to the song and not listen to the mix. That makes sense. You know, I like to fill the room. I use the, the ceiling speakers quite a bit, even if it's just like I kind of I always wanted to have this like, you know, I always felt like I was in a room. I wanted kind of like a, a dome, for lack of a better term. I wanted to fill that space. I didn't want it to feel like the mix was just linear coming out of the sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of discovered, for me at least, that if I, I always have something in the ceiling, so I may take, you know, a keyboard pad that I have on the side and I may just raise it into the ceiling, you know, 20 or 30%. And you may not notice that it's up there, but there's stuff up there. So that, I, this is just my, my feeling, that I think your brain, if there's stuff coming from up there, your brain knows there's stuff up there. It may not perceive it as just there. But then when you do put something hard in the ceiling, it's not jarring. You're not going, oh my God, there's speakers above me. <laughs> there's just a sound coming from a different place. But since there's been sound coming from all over the place anyways, it's not, it doesn't jar your brain into pulling you out of the music and all that. So, so if you look at my mixes, I actually have quite a bit of stuff going on in the ceiling, whether it's, you know, it could be a reverb return. It could just be, you know, a pad that I've lifted up, stuff like that. And then once in a while, you'll get a guitar that'll just hit you right from the top, <laughs> you know, sometimes pulling people out in that little, like, Ooh, what was that over there? That's kind of cool. It's also, it's fun, especially in a big room, like a Capitol where you sit in different spots in the room, you get a different mix. I mean, I like to keep it somewhat focused so that, and I like to keep my sweet spots pretty wide so that if you're not sitting right in the middle, you're still getting a compelling mix. Um, but it's kind of fun sometimes to sit towards the back and hear more what's coming out of the back or, Ooh, I didn't notice that that little percussion thing was over here until I was closer to that speaker. You know, it's, it's kind of fun. You can find out more about Steve at stevegenewick.com. That's Steve, S-T-E-V-E, Genewick, G-E-N-E-W-I-C-K stevegenewick.com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com to listen to the episodes of bobby osinski's inner circle go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com where you can find an apple podcasts amazon music stitcher mixcloud google podcasts spotify deezer TuneIn radio radio public and podbean at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts this is Bobby Osinski I will see you next time Bye.